from the trenches. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to From the Trenches, real life in the accounting industry. My name is David Boyer from Change GPS. Joined with me is Paul Meisner from Freedom Mentoring. We are brought to you by BGL, Australia's number one corporate compliance and superannuation software and the outsourced accountant taking care of all of your global resourcing needs. And Paul Meisner, before I throw to you, the book for sponsorship and partnership is open. If you want to sponsor the last week, number two business news show in Australia and hopefully number one by the end of this week, get in touch. It is David. Thank you. Hello, listeners. Hello, all. We are uh, we are open. We're David. The sponsorship last selling year, out. We are, we're we're partnering. We're partnering, isn't? I, I like think that's. It. I think that's I like the term. It. I we, call that a worst on ground term. But all right, we are we are partnering with businesses who and and, and to be honest, for our listeners, the number one rule that we do say when we we two rules. One, we do declare all of our sponsorship. <laughs> Uh, the second thing is we do reserve the right to still tell the truth uh, if if that, they that, end that up means, on worst clear, on ground. That means put you in worst on ground. Exactly. So, no, it is open. If you know of any add-ons, any add-ons out there listening, uh, we are we are open. Uh, speaking of add-ons, David, let's uh, – this is, of course, the best and worst on ground episode – from the trenches. Uh, big news. We say that every week, but certainly uh, no different this week. There was a big, big sale, a big purchase and a big sale. Uh, now Infinity have uh, have come or class have come to the table and offered up $25 million for the sale of Now Infinity. That is a lot of money. Well, congratulations to Amrita and the team at Now Infinity. We're, we're talking about this. We don't talk about big capital raises for the tech companies, but I think when the exit happens, that's the time to celebrate. The shareholders are getting a return and getting thanked for all of the effort and support that they put in to the, the, the company that they put their money into. I think what's really interesting, Paul, we've really got a two-horse race now. We have Now Infinity in class in one corner, BGL in the other corner, it's a very interesting time in the corporate compliance and SMSF space. I think one thing for me, David, it's certainly this this news seemed to come and go with very little fanfare. And you mentioned it about the valuations when we raise capital. It just seems like we talk about the raise endlessly and seem to seem to um, celebrate it uh, uncontrollably this this is actual this is actual money and someone has got out of these things this isn't just needing to put cash in needing to give away equity to keep the doors open this is actually taking money to this is success to me this is success uh, far more so than the than raising money a couple of interesting things David that happened after this a- absolutely Amrita uh, a friend of the show friend of me personally um, an absolute massive win to get uh, to get that valuation absolutely a plus uh, a plus work on that uh, interesting move uh, looking through the the LinkedIn feed like I do class seemed to there was a resignation post from their head of sales, head of relationships, person moving on. 
uh, conspicuously quickly after the uh, after the purchase announcement. Uh, one of the watch that this spaces uh, on this for me is whether or not Ben Gill, the head of sales, marketing, GM, what that what his role is with now Infinity, whether that uh, leaves him in position for that role would be very interesting. Uh, to me, being on the accountant side, I think the sales cultures of the two entities are, are, are different. Um, it'll be very interesting to see how not only the sales cultures but also the development cultures of a uh, very, very high-growth startup uh, and nimble into a listed uh, existing company will be very interesting to see. Time will tell. Thanks for taking my talking points on that, Paul. I have nothing to add anymore. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> There you go. What's your no, best? It's fascinating. Well, that's What's just your- the culture. When, when these things happen, the way the cultures merge are just fascinating. When you have so many stories of accountants who buy other firms or merge with other firms and really struggling with that culture. I uh, met with an accountant today, uh, uh, accounting practice up in Sunshine Coast. I'm up in I'm in Brisbane now. I was in Sunshine Coast today for the Zero Roadshow. They've just bought a wealth management company and, and the cultures are clashing. You know, wealth is just transactional do it right now culture versus the more considered, well, we've got an ATO lodgement schedule and that governs our workflow, cultures clashing. It'll be interesting to see if that changes in a sales team in a tech company. Best on ground for me, Paul. From the trenches. Love accountants getting together. And one thing that I hear really often is when you're outside of Melbourne and Sydney, finding that real-life community to help you take you along Whatever journey you are on as an accountant is a bit harder to do because you're in smaller places. Heather Smith's group up in Brisbane uh, is a great meetup group and she gets like 100, 150 people to that and the community's been built. Congratulations to Paul Murray at Account Kit and the guys at All In Advisory, Lee and Ali, who have created a new group for accountants in Adelaide. So if you're a South Australian listener, you're an Adelaide accountant, check out the Accountants Tech User Group. It's an event that's being run for accountants. I'm going to read off the off the Eventbrite link here. The purpose of the group is to bring together a bunch of like-minded accountants looking to share their experiences in accounting and technology. And it's great to see. You know, this I can imagine this would happen because the girls at, at All In Advisory are, are active. Uh, we heard them talk from the same stage you spoke at at ZeroCon last year, Paul. Ali was speaking up on that stage. They're she doers. Was. They're people who can clearly get things done. If you're in Adelaide, go check it out. It's great to see the accounting community uh, getting around itself to help its own profession out. And I love that they're charging a price for it. It's a small price. It's 22 bucks. It means that it's valuable. It has been big, uh, certainly in the last uh, few years, about events and whether or not it's paid. Um, uh, very well done, but great to them. Be good to see. Good to see groups like that pop up. Uh, and uh, for Brisbane and Adelaide to be leading the way, great news there. The my second best on ground from the trenches. This comes out of the UK. Uh, we love uh, dodgy accounting stories. This is <laughs> Dixon's Dixon's retail. I, I love these stories, David, because it it just shows the challenges in business and how sort of dealing with VAT or GST just isn't uh, isn't obvious. Dixon's retail PLC uh, seemed to be carrying. Uh, on its accounts receivable. So basically, this is a process where a retail store had uh, paid suppliers via check. The checks were bouncing. Uh, sorry, accounts payable. Um, the the checks had been bouncing and they 
uh, were in, had paid the GST on it. Sorry, this must have been uh, uh, receivables. They'd paid the GST, the VAT on it, uh, and for eight years uh, the, the check had bounced. Uh, so they 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 never received the money for eight years. They have uh, tried to go back to the uh, Her Royal Majesty's, whatever they call it, uh, the, the custom, the tax office over there, and said, um, "Can we get our uh, our VAT back?" Uh, and they've said, "What's taken you so long? You're out of time." For me, this raises a really interesting question that. Presumably, their system, in order to get the bank rec right, has registered that they didn't receive the payment and the check bounced. So for eight years, their their accounts receivable and presuming their aging report has shown these really old, uh, eight year old receivables totaling up to one point nearly not one point nine million pound. Uh, and they've carried them forward going, no, 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 that's collectible. Don't worry about it. No, 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 that's collectible. We'll, that's the know, funny bit. They, that's what I the, mean. <laughs> everything, bef- everything before that is just a nuance of accrual accounting and the time it takes for a check to clear for after the date it's been written. The decision to allow such a large amount to sit on an AP ledger for that long you, you have to question internal processes. And I think Dixon's is a pretty big company. So, if you're the auditor, 1.8 mil may actually not sit within a materiality testing. I actually don't even know what audit process they run anymore, Paul. But it could be a small enough number to get away with. But the internal controls on that clearly weren't picking up what they needed to. But but, but surely, I mean, I, I don't. I know from from small, you know, from small business. If you if you have even a, a hint of a of a GST or a VAT correction, you know, you never want to. Uh, you never want to pay that before you receive it. You never want to give mm. it to the government before you've actually received it. You want to maximise that. For eight years, going no, no, we won't, we won't adjust the VAT yet. We'll, we'll wait, and then they've tried to do it uh, and got uh, knocked back. Uh, just interesting. I just love stories like that. What do you got from the trenches? Uh, Chartered Accountants Automation Playbook has finally made its way into the almost public domain. Now, this is really interesting. It's part of the Catalyst program. I personally wasn't involved in this book, but I know a lot of people who were. Me, there was and like, it's yep. a, it's oh, Is that a bit of bitterness, Paul? Not at all. I was just here for the listeners. Did you want to be involved in the CA automation? Did you want to be, Paul? David? You do, I was just that you met, mate. You mentioned that you weren't. Not particularly. I, just, I was pretty I'm exhausted sharing. producing the CA Catalyst podcast, Paul. Actually, I've got to share something. I haven't checked this off with you. I think I did last year. For, for our listeners, we're going to put through our show – I was able – now, can I tell the story about the Commissioner, Paul? Uh, if you want. <laughs> Paul cracked the sads. And for for the first time in four years, Paul and I had an actual – was it a fight? Was it a tiff? Was it a lover's quarrel? So I think it was a pass- because, passive aggression. Because – Cut my lunch, <laughs> David. Cut our lunch. Because thanks to Chartered Accountants, I scored an interview with the Commissioner for Taxation himself, Chris Jordan. And I wasn't sure what was going to happen because it got postponed a few times. And I told Paul the day before that I'm going to go. And the reason you got upset was not that you didn't get the interview, was that I didn't even invite you to be my sound boy, not even to carry the bag so that you could meet the great Mr. Jordan. And that, listeners, is how much Paul loves tax. Lifelong goal to meet a tax commissioner, David. Didn't uh, yes, no. I was, I, I did, I did feel a little bit left out by that. But but luckily, uh, we it's behind a paywall. So unless you're in my CA uh, 
Uh, You're not going to see the playbook. But we are, we're going to put that episode on From the Trenches. We're going to put an episode from the C.A. Callis podcast. It exhausted me, but it's a great piece of work and the commissioner is going to appear on it. The C.A. Automation playbook, here's the bit that I find impressive about it. And I could tear it apart and there's a lot of things that you can question about it. And it's hard creating something as substantive as this. What C.A. have done really well is found a way to remain unbiased and, and not actually recommend anything specific while still creating awareness around the apps and solutions that are out there. And I don't think that's an easy editorial thing to do. You and I talk about it pretty well, probably once a month on this show about making sure we're getting the right balance right with the things that we talk about and the, the issues that we cover. And I think it's been really well done by Chartered Accountants. Now, to access this book, you can't just get it. You have to go into my CA, into the CA Catalyst group. I think that's where you get it from. And you can download it from there. CA really pushing the, the, the My CA chat group to uh, for members to have a listen to. It's a, if, you're, if you're early on your automation journey, this is a great place to start. Uh, look, I haven't, I've, I've uh, had a chance to have uh, an overview of it. I think for me, one of the, one of the really interesting things um, that comes up for me when we t- you talk about an automation journey is it, it seems like a lot of people, especially who are selling, whether they're independent or not, start with a tech solution to a paper problem rather than starting by really looking at the process and working out how to make that process more efficient. Technology may with paper. Well, sorry, but but there's some some parts to a process you might eliminate. So process improvement or process automation is about understanding. For me, it has always been about re-engineering the process, and some of that is either some of that is through software, but some of it is through eliminating steps in the process. Some of it is through other ways than adopting new systems, if you know what I mean. Some of it might be Excel. I think, well, some of it might be. I think you're being quite flattering. I think so many firms don't have any processes at all. Uh, I think they do, just not documented processes. I think everything oh, has a process, but it's in people's mm-hmm. heads and it's in individual processes. But if, but per it, staff if one if one if one thing's done five different ways by five different staff members, it's not a process. It's just something getting done. But I want to focus on one thing in particular in this report. It, it's got a footnote, so the source is somewhere in the document, but I can't find it. It looks like the footnotes aren't numbered but this footnote's numbered. Average profitability of a small, medium-sized accounting firm is a percentage of gross practice fees. This report says it's 19.3% versus 28.2%, which is the benchmark of top performers. Is that lower than what you expect? The, 19.3%? So, a, a third, firm? a third, a third's always been the, you know, the, the stereotypical benchmark. I think what really is interesting to me is that's not a whole lot of difference between the average and the top. 9%? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's a lot given that, you know, the, the, the top performers, I don't know, it's interesting. I, I think I was expecting a bigger gap, I think. Well, I guess as you get bigger, your staff costs still go. Well, anyway, I'm not, we're not going to get into that now. That's a very interesting thing. I have a feeling, my gut feel is that's come from a B-Star report because they sort of report on these sort of numbers, but I can't actually see it what's did. recent. Where. Yeah, number two came from B-Star. So there you go. That, that has been- You can yes. read that? I can't see that anywhere. All right. 
Uh, that is on page. Oh, there it is. There's a little source on page eight. Yeah, and look, oh, gen- generally put footmarks at the end of the document, but eighty oh, percent went to Monash. Eighty percent of statistics are made up anyway, so it's all right. That's fine. <laughs> anyway, it is interesting. There's not a lot of gap there. Uh, I wouldn't have thought. If you're a CA member and you're in CA, uh, my CA, check it out. My other quick best on ground from the trenches. Uh, just look, talking, uh, putting the the kids in charge of the kindergarten. Uh, Afterpay <laughs> uh, and Zip get oh, in first mate. with a code of practice uh, around financing. Obviously, we've had the Banking Royal Commission and um, uh, sort of payday lenders and these. Uh, what do you call it? At the um, sort of lay by. Well, yes, yes. Many Racketeers. Have, many have, have called it. Uh, what do you call it? You know, where you can, um, it's like lay by. Predatory can, lending. All of, all of, the, all of the above. Uh, very <laughs> short term, short term finance for uh, products, retail type products. When you're at the checkout, instead of swiping your credit card, you can go into debt. Apparently that's a thing. Um uh, in response to a wave of negative feedback in the Banking Royal Commission, they thought, look, let's get in first with our, our own code of practice. Um, of course, uh, you know, no independence issues there when the people writing the rules are the ones abiding by them. Um, actually, with having that said, a lot of that was tongue-in-cheek given that there is some uh, quite good protections in there. I think there is a capping of fees uh, and also the the link will be in the show notes. There is also some information about people who have defaulted previously not automatically being allowed to roll into a new loan. So, that, look, there is certainly some good protections in customers. Uh, I do wonder, as, as a sort of a lot of people do uh, or should, that when the people writing the rules are the ones writing their own rules, what's missing if they've given away stuff like that? Uh, it's be interesting it's- to see. Your final point's really interesting because I think like in the in the real capitalist thin government view of the world, there is a it's a common and, and loud argument that industry should regulate themselves uh, because they're closer to the issues. And in this particular space where it is very, very new, um, there's been a lot of push from it. A lot of the fintechs, the B2B fintechs are signing up to what's that sheet that they do that discloses their effective rate of interest? Square yeah, uh, well, just a disclosure statement, I think. Yeah, loan disclo- um, disclosure. I'll tell you, I'll share a funny story about Afterpay. So, anyone who's followed me on LinkedIn will know I do not like this company. I don't think it's a good business. It just helps speeds up the rate that we can buy unsustainable consumable goods that we don't actually need. And get That's into a particular debt. worldview that I have. And get into debt in the process. I'm sitting at home on Sunday and, and just having a look at doing some some of our sort of household maintenance. Notice on the bank statement uh, a debit large amount debited to Afterpay. I looked at my wife. I said, What's, what, are we, what are we buying on Afterpay? My daughter's just turned two and she's, she's, it's time for the big bed, Paul. We've bought her a big bed. And we bought the big bed. We got some other stuff in the bedroom. And I said, oh, why'd you put it on Afterpay? And she said, why not? And it was that point in time when I realized how useful Afterpay is as a payment mechanism. Because why not? It just makes it a little bit easier. And if you pay it on time and you don't have a problem, it uh, serves a purpose. And that's a that's a very interesting and, – and I totally agree with that. 
It's not dissimilar to credit cards, though. Like, I think if everyone yeah. got the benefit of a credit card, which was 55 days interest-free and paid it off in full, you, you know, you would not have a credit card industry. It's that, yeah. yes, yes, there are people who have the means and have the understanding to kind of go, yep, I'm not paying interest or I'm not, you know, it's not ultimately going to cost me any more. And they can make an informed decision, arguably, like we said, about transparent pricing, et cetera. Um, you know, I, th- I think it's it's for it's for often other people that don't understand and that do that don't get a chance to pay it off and then get into the spiral. But it it wouldn't exist if it didn't have both the ability for it to be used by people who can get sold a benefit with the um, the opposite being true, so that the company can make money. Very interesting, Paul. Uh, my final best on ground for me. From the trenches. There's a bit of a worst on ground in this as well. Now, you would have seen, if you've been on Twitter, you would have noticed something flying around, a lot of accountants filming themselves almost like a selfie, walking through a car park, sometimes with a mic, sometimes not with a mic, with a shaky camera, and using a hashtag for the VD experiment. Is that what it is? Video diary experiment. The video diary experiment is a piece of marketing genius by Twyla Verhelst, who is the I think the founder of Helm Cashflow app, and yeah, it's so, such yeah. a good thing that it's got us talking about it. And I, I for me, a, a cash flow that doesn't sync to a balance sheet, the CFO in me gets a little bit uncomfortable with it. I know it's got a place in the market, but whatever. This is really smart marketing because what the experiment tries to do is get accountants to get the confidence to talk about what they're capable of and share it with people and share it on social media. The downside of this is there's a lot of really sloppy poor content out there that fills your feed. You kind of just end up with it because it's on the hashtag and people I'm following are are liking it. I'm a huge advocate of accountants getting out there and sharing what they do. And listeners, I don't know if you know this, but I actually did a TED Talk where I cover the topic, (laughs) Paul, have you... uh I haven't seen it, David. You must have... All those links you've sent me, I must have missed it. (laughs) But I'll I'll flick you one after the show's finished. The... I have seen an excellent example of it. I don't think it's actually part of the experiment, but it, it follows this idea of accountants putting their knowledge out in the world to sort of better the, the business community and the mums and dads out there. Josh Chai is a partner at HLB Man Judd. I know Josh. I did my chartered accounting with him when we were at Moore Stevens. He's come up on my LinkedIn feed and it's a it's just a, a video of him talking within, I think, the Man Judd boardroom and he's talking about something that's otherwise quite boring. It's the role of family trusts to manage capital gains tax. But it's a short, sharp, two-minute, 38 video. It's done really well. I'll give you an example. It's had 2,500 views on this video. This is an accountant talking about trusts. Um, and Josh only has 2,200 followers. So that's extremely good penetration on LinkedIn. If you're thinking about sharing your knowledge and putting it out into the world, this is a really good benchmark because Josh is just, Josh was a tax nerd when we were, I hope you don't mind me saying this, Josh, he was a tax nerd. And to see an accountant presenting so well on LinkedIn about a boring topic that he's clearly passionate about, I bloody love it, mate. It's so good to see. I, that's a really interesting thing for me. We, you and I have have talked at, not on the show. We, we've wondered how to cover that uh, VPD experiment, whatever it is. Look, I, I'm with you. I think if you if you've got a point and it, if if it encourages people to get on and talk about a passionate 
part of their job and gives information to to current and future clients all for it. I think some of those video series were getting into, this is my 21-day video experiment. People who haven't posted a video of themselves ever um, are currently coming up with 21 days of content. And I think some of those days, it's content for the sake of content. Yes, it's good practice. Um, I think it, as you said, with this uh, Josh example, uh, certainly if it's, a, if it's something in your wheelhouse, it can make a lot of sense and be very powerful. Uh, David, oh, that was a long, with a lot of, with a lot no, that's of content a huge this worst week. On ground. Let's, let's fly through the worst on ground. I've only got one worst on ground, Paul. Go for it, worst on ground. From the trenches. People are stupid and marketers are geniuses. I'm about to demonstrate very, very quickly why the power of marketers in building a brand changes the way the world thinks. The coronavirus is something that people are very, very worried about. But according to Google, there has been a massive spike in the corona beer virus. How, Paul? How? How did people not search that and think, oh, it's not the beer. It's just I hear the word corona, I associate it with the brand. Maybe they're thinking of, hmm, sitting on a nice Mexican beach with an icy cold corona with a lime dipped in the top and contracting a virus that's potentially life-threatening doesn't sound nice. My big question about this is how much brand damage is this done for corona or has it boosted it because people have searched for it and said, oh, ha, ha, it's not corona beer virus. I'm an idiot. Power of marketing, Paul, it's amazing. Of all the of, of all the things, and you know, certainly marketers are uh, quick and very skilled at latching on to the zeitgeist or to things, events that are happening. Uh, are you suggest? Hang on, are you suggesting that the virus was named by a marketer to latch on to corona? No, 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 not it- at all. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. But no, I'm just saying that you know that that, that marketing is. Um, you know, some of these things happen very quickly. <laughs> linking, linking you, any marketer who goes and pitches, there's a new deadly virus out. Uh, I think we're going to latch onto it from a from a marketing sense. I, I, I do wonder, and I did see. I think Corona did tweet, um, put a few tweets out talking about the link. I, I think for me, some of this um, certainly may have been them needing to. Uh, needing to respond and make something out of it so people um, with not much knowledge of, of medical <laughs> medical things uh, it, convincing them not to associate the two concepts. I don't know. I think it, I felt this was sort of more a little bit about something they had to comment on or had to uh, make a marketing joke for want of a better word out of out of their association or their names association with it so as not to be honestly tagged with it I think fair enough not uh, so sure I think people are just foolish next you've got the, lots of worst on grounds I do I do open banking um, just some interesting stuff that is coming up in Australia uh, later this year Banks, big banks especially, will be uh, told, will be uh, made to share banking data with the smaller players, very much tipped to uh, open uh, open the files, open the data to smaller fintechs 
who are looking to get a share of the lending market that's arguably dried up since the financial crisis um, and banking review. Just a couple of interesting things this article um, says uh, quoted the uh, the par- a partner of a venture venture capital firm Airtree as saying that completely. So this is a comment on the open data sharing completely takes the friction out of applying for a mortgage. Uh, he says was the quote. Uh, anyone who's tried to apply for a mortgage surely knows that handing over the data only creates more friction uh, than it does remove it. You know, I'm, I'm not entirely sure whether uh, more data for me makes applying for a mortgage easier. Um, I think one of the most interesting things that's going to come out of this open banking is, um, and I'm calling this somewhat of a bit of a poison chalice in that businesses that... Um, that share too much data, and I mean data that's not entirely, that's not finalised yet, that's more like the management set of accounts that hasn't been, I guess, applied the same lens as how would a finance, how would someone looking to give me finance um, do this? Uh, I think businesses are really going to suffer if they're not careful with how their data or how much data they give to a potential mortgage. I'll give you a very quick example, David. This came out of um, one of those um, data factoring companies, I think, that say, give us a link to your zero file um, uh, or or we sort of give us an open amount of data and we'll put our computer through to to understand your situation. It, It turns out that for the client or for the zero file I did this for, it would have ruled them out of finance. But when I spoke to the person on the phone uh, and took them through the situation, they said, well, if we hadn't have got that data, if you had come through the other channel and just answered our normal questions and given us the data that that you wanted to give us, which it's it's sort of not that the other data was incorrect, it was just out of context. I think we're going to see a lot more of that and I wonder whether getting finance is going to become harder. I actually disagree with you on this one. The uh, and I've had fintech clients and I've sat in their credit teams. And I actually I actually sat in the credit team and actually watched how they're doing these approvals. And these are lenders who are, are looking at fundamentally different lending to what banks look at. And you know, part of the reason I left that, well, I wouldn't say left. Part of the reason I never really fit in when I was a NAB banker. And I was a NAB business banker for three years was the computer says no approach to lending, which I think is fundamentally bad. The way I've seen these credit departments work on their approval process, they get the computer to do the heavy lifting and it's going to a human approval. And they're looking for things that are different than the credit criteria that I looked for when I was at NAB. The flip side of your comments that you made about about saying no, and, and this is outside of the big four, is that the non-big four lenders have a different risk appetite for lending. And a lot of them are just looking for their ability to be serviced and paid, which bankers call the primary exit, and care less about the secondary exit, which is the property security. So in the scenario that you're talking about, they say, well, if you just came through the regular channels, it would have been approved. I'll almost get bet. I'll, I'll almost guarantee that that includes taking property as security. But on the pure cash flow lens, I think it's okay for a lender to ask for that information that you're asking for. Because they're making decisions, it may not be, it may not have the context yet, 
a good credit analyst will ask the question, but it's more up to date than information that banks ask for for lending. So the traditional banks, let's just say you sign off your accounts in May 2019 for FY18, banks will lend against those statements that are you know a year old, a yearish old. Is that good lending process? I don't think it's substantially better than the scenario uh, you just described. Anyway, it will be very interesting to see a good, uh, oh, finally, a, a good use of your banking history for those <laughs> listeners uh, who get reminded that you did a TED Talk. Uh, you don't seem to remind listeners that uh, you were also a banker for many years. Oh, when it comes up, I do. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. When it's useful. No, all good. No, yeah. I, I do I do rib you about that. I, I like- didn't like it. I, I didn't enjoy working for a big corporate. I, I liked it for a bit and it's fun. But but the big corporate stuff, it wasn't for me. Didn't love it. Fair enough. Learned a lot. Didn't love it. Fair enough. But good, uh, it's good to see a lot of different um, sides to it. It's good to see the other side of, of lending um, so that when you sit on the other side, you know, you know what to do. An interesting article, just a quick one that follows on from the open – uh, open banking area. Commonwealth Bank comes out uh, a little bit of a uh, protectionist strategy here saying, well, if I'm going to give up all of my data to the small fintech players, um, why doesn't the tax office and why don't other government departments practice a bit of that open data to, on the face of it, kind of makes sense, I guess, if you are, if you want to take with one hand, give with an other. A little bit to me just seems like a bit of a uh, a greedy demand for for data. To me, your thoughts, David? Um, perhaps. <laughs> well, well done. Profound. I wasn't. I wasn't really paying attention because I thought of worst on ground that I didn't put in the sheet. No, it's it's it's. There's no doubt there's protectionist behaviour going on by the big banks who are just getting. It's quite funny. Like they're they're not lending, and so by not lending and by not supporting businesses, they're creating that there's unfulfilled demand, and then when other players come in to meet the demand, they seem to get their back up and and crack it. It's a funny yeah, thing. Absolutely. What was your? Uh- Worst on ground from the interesting conversation with Brian Walsh is the country manager for the outsourced accountant at the roadshow today up in the Sunshine Coast. I'll tell you what, Sunshine Coast yesterday, Paul, 36 degrees, possibly the most humid place I've ever been on earth. <laughs> Bit cooler today, fortunately, for those of us who were there. He he brought up an amazing point. MyGov ID for accessing tax portal services. Yep. Two questions. As firms use more and more staff overseas, how's that actually going to work? But the biggest question, how many government departments use offshore labour to support government services? And the story goes that when the government sought consultation on MyGovID, consultation was responded to by the big four accounting firms who said, okay, we don't have a problem with this, but nobody actually thought about what it meant for government. Uh, my, I was in some of those consultations around my Gov ID, so I can speak with hopefully some uh, some authority, although limited. I'm not entirely sure that the government systems use my Gov ID as their login. 
So I think they work on a different, I'm not sure, but I would assume mm. that this is for this is for practitioner and taxpayer facing services, not not the government's internal systems. That's the way I would comment on the it's outsourced labour by by government departments. There seems to be some movement on this. I think there's a meeting of minds happening and the government's been largely responsive on solving the problem. Well, they certainly have outsourced labour of, of accounting firms. There is a process, I believe, in train for outsourced labour of tax agents to get a, a a sort of a the basic level MIGA. I've had some really interesting comments today, not necessarily under the worst on ground. I've had a very interesting comment uh, conversation with a tax agent talking about holding an old version of an Android phone um, mm. back to 2016, I believe. So a four-year-old phone, not, you know, like it's old in a mobile device sense. It's not particularly old. Um, uh, and him talking about that the MyGovID app doesn't work on his phone. Um, I'm, I've been doing some research this afternoon on the back of that conversation on Apple, it it revolves around a device that is uh, seven years old. For Android, it's a little newer. My MyGov ID is a really a really interesting thing. It's causing a lot of a lot of issues about whether about whether or not staff are allowed phones in the office. Um, how people need to upgrade their phones. I, I think it's a very interesting. It, it's going to be an in, a very interesting sort of four to six well, months. It's coming back to Elon Musk, who sort of says that the cyborg revolution's already here. The, the, the phones, the device, the, the phones, the augmented human. It's always by us. We're addicted to it, and there's just some friction in the change management of that in this part of the world. Paul, is that it? Is that our show today? It's a long I've got, show. I've got one more. It is a long show, but it, look, it's all right. It's it's punchy. There's a lot of pieces of content. Um, last one, a little bit interesting. This came out of the Chartered Management Institute. It was the head of that institute. Her name is Anne Frankie. Saying that sports banter in the office can exclude women and lead to laddish behaviour such uh. as chat about sexual contexts, uh, conquests, sorry, was her quote. Um, a lot of women in particular feel left out, she told the BBC's Today program. Look, a, a very interesting concept for me, a little bit about, you know, how far do we go in limiting conversation and assigning conversation agenda um, or exclusion? I think for, for me, I've always walked worked in smaller firms and the biggest firm I worked in was actually uh, female-dominated, not male-dominated. So I've sort of never seen that other side of it and I certainly don't um, discount that it happens. But can we can we uh, regulate the water cooler? Well, Paul, I took four taxis or Ubers in my time in the Sunshine Coast and Every time I got in that mode of transportation, I was asked, where are you from? Melbourne. Oh, yeah, who do you go for in the footy? Good luck regulating taxi driver conversation while we're at it. I, I'm glad we're doing this at the end of the show. I find this very hard to talk about. Melbourne is the sporting capital of Australia. I can't if, – if you are struggling to connect with someone in Melbourne, sport is the thing that unites people, not divides them. 
The AFLW starts this weekend. I'm taking my daughter to her first footy game. It's going to be a women's footy game. I'll tell you what, to start telling people what they can and can't talk about when it comes to sport, the one thing used to unite people. Oh, what a world, Paul. I, world. I, I just and, – and I'm uh, – it, it is an interesting – uh, it is an interesting topic. I just, I just can't help but think what the reaction would have been if it was uh, a different, uh, a different topic that was raised in a different gender. That's the interesting thing for me. But we won't get into that at the end of the show. Uh, as always, listeners, uh, please hit us up with any content you have. David is on the road shows. I will be doing uh, as many of the Victorian ones as I can. Um, are you going to come? You going to come out to Nary Warren? I'm not sure. Are you doing Nary Warren? Yeah, but there's no demos available for you. All the slots are booked. Sorry, mate. For other people, we've got some for you. I'm waiting for my. I'm waiting for my demo. Uh, I, we will hopefully see you all on the road. If you go up to uh, David, if you're out in the road shows around uh, Australia, look out for him. Uh, no, I've worked out. Nobody knows what I demo. look like, Paul. Because when I go out, I've been talk- I've been talking to people. Say, I say, oh, are you from the Ventures? Oh, you're David. Well, I'm certainly not Paul. Come <laughs> say good day, guys. Love to have a chat. Uh, and whatever content you have, otherwise, have a great week. See ya. Thanks again for listening to an episode of From the Trenches. David and I love to hear from listeners, so you can reach out if you've got feedback or story ideas, get in touch. I can be reached on Twitter at PaulMeissner underscore or on LinkedIn, Paul Meissner. I'm on Twitter at David Boyar, B-O-Y-A-R, on LinkedIn, David Boyar. From the Trenches.